So move out of that one circle into another circle, into a larger circle of friends, of peers, of colleagues, and allow yourself to grow. And I choose my words carefully, allow yourself to grow. You're listening to the Building a Coaching Culture podcast. If you need to compete and win in the 21st century labor market as an employer of choice, this podcast is for you. Each week, we share leadership development, coaching, and culture development insights from leading experts who are developing world-class cultures in their own organizations. And now, here's your host, J.R. Flatter. Hey, welcome back, everybody. I'm J.R. Flatter, your host. And as always, we're here with our co-host, Lucas. Hello. And our special guest today is Melody Gratic, with a T, Gratic. <laughs> we were practicing that before we started. So just to remind everybody, this is building a coaching culture. And so building leadership bench strength, building your culture, coaching accreditations, internal, external coaching, anything that comes to mind that's a part of that building a coaching culture. And our listeners are leaders of complex organizations who are competing and succeeding in this hyper-competitive 21st century labor market. So the changes that we've seen in the labor force in the last several years are not going away. So it's much more dispersed, virtual. Leadership remains pretty much the same over time, but the expectations that workers have from their leaders and their organizations is certainly changing and maturing. So with that, Melody, I pass it over to you and please introduce yourself and brag about some of the great work you're doing. Okay, great. It is a pleasure to be on this 2RL leadership broadcast, coaching broadcast, creating a coaching culture. My name is Melody Graddick, and I am the CEO and founder of Excel Mill LLC, where we empower teens to excel. Some of the uh, values that we have is commitment, integrity. And then empowering the workforce towards transformation and influencing change in organizations through leadership training and development, executive coaching, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we also do some market research. But we are all about empowering your teams, coming in as a consultant and or a coach and collaborating with you towards your goals and outcomes. Great. There's a lot there. You got a lot going on in your life. Yeah. I know you're a coach, you're an accredited coach. And you transform organizations. Talk to me a little bit about what that means from you. And if I'm a leader, I think I might need to transform my culture. How do I work with you to do that? Well, we do a discovery session. Our first session is a discovery session so that we can ascertain what is your current climate within your organization. And through the collaboration and meaningful meetings, we actually take and interpret from the surveys that you may have already conducted as far as your employee surveys and employee engagement. And we look to see what are some of those pain points that already, that might be there and that you might want to resolve. And we develop a strategy and we collaborate with you and align with your core values to develop a strategy for your company and organization and teams to move forward. And that comes through like, let's look at some focus groups, interviews, and literally talking to the employees to gauge where they currently are, 
your emerging leaders, your middle managers, your frontline supervisors. So we have conversations and those conversations lead to an action plan. Great. So how big do I need to be to, to bring you in? What's too big? What's too little? How long are we going to be working together? There's no organization too big or too small. I believe an organization is it consists of people, leaders. I like to say leader of leaders. And so as an organization, even if you're an organization of one, personal and professional development is a priority for our organization. It does help improve productivity, your efficiency, and skills and competencies in your particular industry or niche. And so we're willing to work with a micro organization as well as a larger organization. Nonprofit, for-profit, government, Nonprofit, for-profit. If it's an org- I love the word organization because it's an organization and that consists of people, whether it's for-profit, nonprofit, you know, civic organizations, government entities, quasi-government entities. We are here to service what we call people. And people make up an organization. And so we are willing to work with them all across the board. There's nothing off the table. So say you're an organization. I, you mentioned that you kind of look at the existing culture and values and then try to you know, reinforce those. If I'm an organization that doesn't have great clarity on what my values are, do you help kind of like bring awareness there? We can help with goal setting and realigning a focus so that there can be a clear, compelling vision. What's important to you? Where do you want to drive the organization? What do you want to eventually, what's the future state that you want to see the organization? So throughout our collaboration, it will be what we call actionable steps. And, you know, asking that leader to develop those actionable, actionable steps through what we know as SMART goals, you know, that are specific, that are measurable, that are achievable, that are real or relevant and or time bound. And so with SMART goals, we develop a plan and then we sit down and we have them chart down what's important to them, what's important to their employees, what type of culture do they want to have? What did, you know, as far as brand awareness and brand reputation, let's look at how do you want to look with your external stakeholders? So we take them from internal organization to what their external stakeholders might say about working with them. So what's their reputation in the industry and how can they improve that to gain a competitive advantage? So as I'm listening to you as a leader of semi-complex organization, what do you think, Lucas? Uh, <laughs> we are semi-complex. <laughs> and I think I might need you in my C-suite to help us. What are some of the questions I should be asking of someone like you that I know I'm going to get? Well, I know if you show up, it's going to be good. But some of your competitors out there tell a good story. But then when they show up, we don't get much done. So how do I know? I would challenge every senior leader that's in the C-suite. You know, I'm sure you have personnel in your company. Do your business intelligence. Even as a consultant, it is critical that we evaluate the reviews of a potential coach or consultant. Look at their reviews. Look at the historical trends of what are their past successes with other organizations, because that's instrumental. What success have you had with other organizations? What were their results? Call their references. 
to get, you know, constructive feedback on their performance. Because as you're bringing us on board, it's an interview process and you can select the cream of the crop. You get to select the best of the best. So use that same HR tech, you know, strategy of interviewing your employees to interview your consultants. What are the criteria that's important for you or someone to work and be not necessarily an appropriate fit, because that's not necessarily the right term now in the diverse, inclusive workplace Mm -hmm. that we're working in, but make sure that they align with your core values that you do, that you may have already established for your organization. Wow. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. And then if I'm an organization that kind of feels like I do understand my culture and I think I'm reinforcing it well. How would you pitch your services to somebody that, you know, they don't think they're in trouble necessarily? There's a book that I just picked up by the Arbinger Institute called Leadership by self It's like self-deception. And, and so before I start diving into it, one of the things that myself and the representative was talking about is bringing awareness to some, a lot of things can be going well in an organization, in the HR department, the R&D department, your tech department. Everything can be going well. But there are those different things that are on the peripheral that we might be ignorant about or not fully aware of. And so bringing, evoking awareness to see, okay, engage and say, okay, what is something that is probably under the radar that people are afraid to share with me? So now let's just kind of like what we say, unpack or peel back the layers to see what that area of that person, that leader within your organization or employee that may be challenged to come to you, to share with you, which is what we call a blind spot. So let's raise the awareness of what those blind spots are and bring them to the forefront in a safe environment for your employees to address. So one of the challenging things in the business that you're in and the business that I'm in developing human beings is measuring the value of what we do. If I, if I were to ask you as a potential customer, how am I different and how am I more valuable after you're done? How would you answer that question? Great question. Again, the value that we as consultants and coaches bring to an organization is measured and the improved performance of your employees, the retention of your employees, that we're in a a state where now everyone is familiar with the great resignation and people are exiting the workforce in large numbers. And so in order to reverse that, bringing value to an organization says you get to retain the top talent within the industry by creating a positive coaching culture and a positive climate within your organization. And so that's measurable in the long, short term and long term through not having to pay for high turnover Mm. and to retrain, to attract and recruit a new employee. So you're going to start seeing some of the dividends or return on your investment as a leader from your employees not exiting because they're they want to come to work not just because they have to come to work. So notice the uh, verbiage, want to come to work. I look Mm -hmm. forward to getting up and coming in day in and day out, completing the projects, completing the deliverables that are part of my roles and responsibilities. 
as an employee within your organization. But when I say I want to get come to work, I enjoy my work environment. I rate it very favorably on the surveys. I, as a leader within the organization, can now be your brand ambassador for your organization because now I can share with my friends just how I enjoy what I do and where I work at because of the benefits, the climate, the camaraderie within the organization, the teamwork, that that my ideas are welcomed and appreciated by my leaders. So when I say the return on investment, some of it's tangible. And of course, you'll also see it in the bottom line with the revenue and your ranking among your competitors. Personally, for you, Melody, what what motivates you and what excites you about leadership development and culture development? Love that question. What excites me about empowering human beings is the fact that to see everyone reach their full potential within the workplace and within an organization, to see performance improvement, to see people motivated to come to work. I don't necessarily like toxic work environments. I like the work environments where people can collaborate, feel like they're a part of a family, because you do work more day-to-day with your coworkers than you spend at home sometimes, even though we have the majority of the workforce still working from home. But prior to that posture, you spent more time, 10 to 12 hours at work between commuting and actually being in the workspace, in the offices, on the sites, than you did at home. So why not make it a place where everyone can thrive within the workplace versus dread coming to work? And then as a result, the company suffers absenteeism, people going, you know, and of course we have the mental health available to them to go and sit and talk with somebody. But having that thriving work environment is just productive on both ends. It's profitable for the leadership team and it's profitable for the employee as well as their vendors. So I'm looking at your LinkedIn site and you got several descriptive words here. First being a veteran. So that's obviously important to you and important to the coach and consultant that you are. The one that intrigues me the most, and I think it's most relevant, is an executive coach. So you're a consultant and an executive coach. Could you talk to us a little bit about the strengths of those and how they might be different? As a consultant, we're strategizing and developing solutions in a strategic plan for organization and bringing forth solutions and our recommendations. (laughs) It's ultimately still the leader's decision to decide on that course of action that we map out for them. As an executive coach, we have what we've learned through our coaching cohort is we are thinking partners with the leadership team. So we're not there to make decisions. We're there to ask those thought-provoking questions that cause self-reflection for the leader to discover what's already within them. They have the answers. And sometimes it's just being in a safe environment where they know that their information is not going to be shared outside of that environment where we practice confidentiality as coaches to where they can openly share and dialogue about what's going on with them. What are they experiencing? You know, successes, challenges, you know, just a issue that might arise within the workspace that they want to bring to the forefront, but they're uncomfortable doing it among their peers. Well, as a coach, they can, you know, freely share that 
without it being an like without it being disclosed or divulged to their frontline leaders. We talk about intergenerational leadership and, you know, looking at JR being a boomer and me being a millennial and do you think that there are different expectations on the gen- different generations and is it trending towards anything else or is it kind of steady across the board everyone needs what they need as employees? I do believe it's different. One of the things about intergenerational leadership, intergenerational coaching is understanding the differences and nuances between the boomer generation, I am a generation Xer, proud to say that, and you know, in engaging with the the millennials and the generation Z. And so what's warm about the millennials and the generation Z, they're open they're open-minded. They're in a way of a good, well, I would say radical, but in a good way. They care about causes that's happening, social causes that are happening around the world. So they have a very global perspective, as well as the boomers. It's not that they don't have it, but their priorities, because of the different life events that they navigated through, they were exposed to different things. Like each decade presents different global and or social issues. And we that are alive during those particular decades, we respond to those particular situations. Now with your boomers, they're more dedicated to staying on a job or particular within a particular organization. You know, they're loyalists. They will be there to 20 years, 15 years, whereas your millennials are going to be inclined, according to recent studies, they may move around every two years. And, you know, they get the experience and then they move on to another position. We that are Xers and boomers, you know, prefer to stay aligned with one organization as part of our loyalty and dedication. But then, too, you have the backdrop to that is one generation had parents that were both at home. The next generation was raised by parents that were both working and out of the house. And so they kind of raised themselves in a way unless they had a nanny. And then the other one had experienced a lot of divorce. And so those are the individuals or leaders that are now in the workspace. So it's very, you know, for me, very important that leaders understand those intergenerational differences so that we can lead with that that in mind, so that we have that information and knowledge to lead them and coach them in a manner that respects and understands that backdrop. Thank you for, um, you know, identifying those social factors. A lot of the time we're kind of talking about it in an abstract way. So that was helpful. We talk about DE&I a lot. You brought it up a few times already. How do you reconcile those differences and actually create DE&I when we're all so different? You know, really diversity is for me respecting the other individuals sitting across the table from you. And getting to have a conversation with them to understand their, you know, their environment that they were shaped in as far as what they were, you know, like I was raised in Panama City, Florida. Proud to say it that I'm from Florida. I'm right there by Panama City Beach. And I, you know, I'm a woman of faith and I'm not unapologetically, but while at the same time, I respect somebody that has a different point of view. And I am not, you know, my undergrad is in Bible and theology. And then I went on to do an educational leadership master's degree. I've always been that one that's been a lifelong learner. I'm a student of life. 
And so as a student of life and a student of people, I enjoy being around people. You know, I enjoy interpersonal interaction with people. I've grown as a result of being in diverse environments, you know, throughout my military career. And that has helped shape my worldview. My worldview is broad because, you know, when you're stationed over in Germany and spent time over in Belgium, I spent seven years consecutive overseas and I traveled extensively. That helps you to have a diverse, well, it has a diverse perspective, but an appreciation for different cultures. And an appreciation for different cultures is also appreciation that everyone's not going to practice the same faith that I practice. But as a professional, I respect them. And I also listen to understand versus just to like, you know, have a quick response back. We can agree to disagree on certain matters. And so having that broad perspective and backdrop says, I love all people. And therefore, when I serve them as a consultant and or as a coach, I bring my whole self and I would like and implore them to bring their whole self into the picture and not feel like they can't do it. Speaking of like having an open mind and, you know, broad perspective, I know that everybody kind of comes in with biases that they're not necessarily aware of. So are there things that we can do to kind of confront those and make sure that they're not an issue in the workplace? We can. I said this in a couple of classes ago is I actually went on to and took the implicit association test from Harvard. And it's startling as you're taking that implicit association association test, the results from it and being informed about the biases that you may have, because we all have them, gives you an opportunity to say, you know what, I want to be different. I want to move past, this is my current results from the IAT. Now let me move the needle the next time I take it in that particular area where it identify an area that I need to work on or develop. And through development, and it could be listening to a podcast, it could be going to a TEDx talk, different ways that we learn. So, and then it could also be picking up a book and reading it. And also like embedding yourself in that other person's culture, you know, an organization um, that you would want to be inclined to be a part of so that you can learn more about that culture. And, and so the rich thing about the fabric of the United States is we are, again, a melting pot. There's Chamber of Commerces. There are civic organizations. There are so many different groups that you can just go plug yourself in and learn about that other culture. Right. Yeah, I, it's like almost learning a new word or something. Once you're aware of some other culture, you see it all around you. Like my wife is Colombian and now I'm meeting all sorts of new Colombian people <laughs> and seeing them in my neighborhood and everything. So it's really cool exposing yourself to those things. As we listen to you, it's obvious that you're a very talented, educated, successful coach and leader. How do I become you? I want to be you when I grow up. I had mentors. I will have to say it, I was not done alone. I had mentors that believed in me, that challenged me, that um, had constructive feedback to share with me. And that constructive feedback wasn't always pleasant and always wasn't like, you know, you're doing such a great job. It was kind of that in your face type confrontational conversation to say you have more in you. Don't settle for less. 
when I joined the military, it was to um, leave the Panama City, experience something different and travel the world. And I understood through traveling the world that I would experience and learn from other people. So it was like, get out of my circle and get into some other circles. And then through getting into those other circles, it's uncomfortable sometimes, but I believe in doing it while you're uncomfortable. And that's where growth really starts at. And so with that being said, you know, it's find a mentor, you know, trust someone, you know, be vulnerable to share those apprehensions that you may have, the anxieties that you may have, the, you know, you may be trembling, but still do it. And and so you learn a lot from just allowing yourself to, to, to move out of your circle. There's a book that I study called Concentric Circles. So move out of that one circle into another circle, into a larger circle of friends, of peers, of colleagues, and allow yourself to grow. And I choose my words carefully. Allow mm-hmm. yourself to grow. It's a choice. That's an interesting philosophical viewpoint. There are two kinds of thought with regard to that. None of I want to put my professor hat on too long, but self-determination and you know, are you destined? So it sounds like you have a hybrid look, destiny and self-determination. I have a hybrid view, and that's the philosopher um, part of me is that I, I believe in the human potential. I believe that there's greatness inside of people. And discovering that greatness is removing some lids some self-limiting beliefs. And as we take off the lid, as we take off, you know, start removing some of those self-limiting beliefs, neuroscience has shown that we can build new neural pathways. We can learn, we can uh, rewire our brains. And so exposure to new information shapes us, it builds us, and we grow as a result. Speaking of like exposing yourself to that information, do you mostly do that through reading or, you know, what kind of things? I I think we kind of touched on a little bit of it, but how do you deliberately expose yourself to new things that way? I have found success. I'm an avid reader, so I'll pick up a book and read. I'll listen to different podcasts. I'll go to different leadership summits, conferences. And through uh, those relationships that I've built through some of those leadership conferences and listening to different thought leaders that are in this space, you grow and you're able to discard some traditional thought patterns that you had. We call it a paradigm shift. And so for me, it's just making those little mental shifts. And it doesn't have to be in a, like a leap and bound. It could be incremental progress. And incremental progress is still progress. And, and so through those exposing yourself to those different type of environments or learning path, pathways, they're learning pathways. We call it curated learning pathways for a reason. There's a formal way of learning and then there's informal ways of learning. Well, yeah, we talk about that incremental growth a lot on this podcast. So totally agree with that. To just add on a little bit to that, then Atomic Habits, James Clear, he tells us to take incremental steps. He actually has a two minute rule. So if you want to learn a language, two minutes at a time. If you want to get in better shape, two minutes at a time to start and then obviously grow from there. So I want to come back for a second. This idea that's just in my coaching, I come across it all the time and it's very intriguing. This idea of authentic self. And that's a beautiful ideal, right? I think I have the luxury of being myself. 
whether I'm parenting, leading, coaching. Some people don't feel that they can be. And then to show my boomer ignorance, I just recently discovered this idea of code switching, right? So when I put all three of those together, authentic self, code switching, DE and I, I'm having trouble reconciling those three. Help me out. Okay, I definitely will. Authentic self is something that is, you know, we use these different slang terms, but they have when you, you know, the connotation of them is there. Like being your real authentic self is bring your whole self to the table without having to hide who you are, you know, what you value, who you love. Bringing your authentic self is not having to wear a facade. And, uh, you know, when you show up at work, you're one way. And then when you go home, you're another way. And when you're out in a public setting, you have a public persona. So here's the public persona. Here's your work persona. And here's your home persona can be very taxing and exhausting for a leader and an employee. And so when that employee and leader gets to bring their whole authentic self, the best version of their self to work, they can contribute more because they're not stressed from having to compartmentalize. And that's what we've done in the past is compartmentalized our lives. So we've had to code switch. We've had to, um, not everyone uses big words. You know, they say write on a ninth grade level when you're writing so that everyone can understand. It doesn't have to put, pick, up, pick up a dictionary or pull out a thesaurus to see what you're trying to interpret what you are saying. And so code switching is being able to not have to appear in disguise. You get to be yourself. And the workforce now has to transition to respecting and appreciating the employee the leader, the staff member that, that they are working with. And that's that person, who they are, you know, their values, who they are at the core. And, you know, we want to say raw and real, but that is, the, that is the way that we now value who's sitting across the table from us, who's in the next cubicle from us, who's across the video from us, so that they don't have to, you know, adopt another vernacular for when they are at work. And then when they go home, they use a completely different language. You know, it's like almost speaking a foreign language because in work, you got to speak this way, but at home, you speak this way, you know? And so you get to be you. And so now we're in a state where people are discovering who they're discovering who themselves. COVID, you know, had some positives that came out of it. And now being at home and having time to reflect, people now appreciate like they could take the mask off. The the workplace did a transition from suits to casual wear. And that was a big shift when that took place, that you come business casual versus just everybody wearing a, a suit, having to have a collar. And this is the professional look. Well, the professional look also is business casual. And then it went a step further with Google and some of the other workplaces to show that, hey, jeans and a, a, a top, you know, and a sweat or a jeans and a T-shirt or a nice shirt with a logo on it is comfortable. It created what innovation, creativity, you know, it sparked their genius because they didn't have to worry about 
having to dress all the way up because they just want to, hey, I want to create something. I'm a, I'm a creative. I'm an artist. I'm a techie. And so this is the world that we live in now. We talk about this a lot in coaching. If we are going to agree to work together, let's say, let's look at our International Coaching Federation. That's an intersection between the two of us. Mm-hmm. We necessarily align ourselves to core values of the ICF. So as a leader of an organization and you're a CEO, you know, what are those few things that we agree on? And then you have freedom to do anything else with the, anything else. So as a former policy writer, I learned that the less I said, the more free I made the people reading it. And the same is true when you're identifying your core values. It should be a short, powerful list. Mm-hmm. And then you get to choose everything else beyond that, how you wear your hair, what you, the way you dress. But there's a line in the sand, and maybe it's my boomer coming out, dropping the F-bomb at work, right? That still, I know I see my millennial son smiling. You know, that's probably a regular part of the Gen Z. And I've heard Gary V talk about this. I've heard, gosh, I can't think of the author right now, another book I was reading about culture. And he decided that it, it's just okay because to fight it is more than the juice isn't worth the squeeze. So where are you in those gray areas? How do you help, help me clarify? That gray area we kind of agree on. I, um, as a Generation Xer, I feel that there is appropriate l- a language for work and inappropriate language for work. That still is something I have to navigate to. It's one of those things where there's there's appropriate language for work and inappropriate language for work. And I understand different work environments require a different posture, but it shouldn't be to the point where people cannot be themselves. And I think we that's where a, a conversation that would be a great focus group or, uh, you know, how we have the ERG groups. It's like, let's let's just table that and question that and get a, a pulse. You know, I like to say get a pulse from the organization, a feel of what everybody thinks about that, because it is a sensitive topic for many. Many still like cringe, like that is just not the word to use in the workplace, you know, coming back from Monday morning or Tuesday. And so that's what a conversation that still has to uh, be had. And but going back to your the ethics and the core values and being an inclusive environment as part of our policy, those are things that needs, again, delineated within the policy and then communicated broad what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. Yeah, to put my professor hat on for a second, the difference between ethics and morals. So morals are mine. The M in morals is me. Ethics is the organization. And so hopefully in the interview process or when we're getting into a new coaching relationship. It's pre-coaching in the coaching agreement phase. We're having those kinds of conversations. Mm-hmm. Can our morals align sufficiently for us to work together? You know, as coaches, in, especially in the International Coaching Federation, they have a strong set of core values, a strong set of ethics. They're a global organization serving every ethnicity, every preference, every, every gender, obviously. It's really important in the, in our coaching field. I'm glad that you brought that up, Jr. Because morals, 
we sometimes try to superimpose our morals on everyone else. And mm-hmm. that's where a lot of tension is created. But yeah. when we understand, and one of the things I do appreciate about the millennials and Generation Z is they're interviewing the employer now. The roles mm-hmm. are reversed in this generation. This generation is like, if your organization does not align with my core values and what I want, uh, an environment where I want to work at, I'm not even going to consider you you know, when I'm actually putting my applications in. And so we cannot superimpose our morals on anyone, but we certainly can align with that particular company's ethics, policies, values, and corporate structure or corporate social responsibility. So if those don't align, it might not be the best place for that person to work at or as things are shifting and changing, I say leaders have a decision and they're seeing the results of whether there is a mismatch or there there is an incongruency. And that's why people are exiting because the values are there on black and white and in their policy book. However, the decisions don't always align with the values. And with that incongruency, people are like, no, we're going to go look to work somewhere else where their words match what they are actually saying within their policy, ethics, and values, and mission. Yeah, you, you've brought us full circle because we're right back where we started. The 21st century hyper-competitive labor market, the great resignation. You're right. Lucas interviews people all the time, and it's a back-and-forth interview. And people have the opportunity to work anywhere, geographically, virtually. So if you do want to compete and succeed in the 21st century labor market, you better have a coaching culture. You better have ethics that are powerful and short and uh, allow a lot of flexibility, a lot of freedom. And the job's still getting done. I think that's what we're really surprised in discovering. Oh, you mean if I don't have a pressed pair of trousers on, I could still do my job? (laughs) (laughs) You know, and it's interesting how that has nothing to do with our cognitive ability. No, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when I think about technical and cognitive ability and aptitude and acumen, what I have on does not necessarily, it's not an indicator of my IQ Mm -hmm. or my technical capability. But what my performance should speak for itself. And that's what you're, um, that's what you hired me for. That's what you're paying my bonuses and increases for is what I actually deliver when I'm at work. I'm thinking about, you know, culture at specific organizations, but then just looking at work over time, like, you know, having a two day weekend and shifts over time, 40 hour work week. Do you predict any kind of paradigm shifts in the future in the next couple of years? Like I've heard a lot about the four-day work week, but what do you feel about that? I've researched that. I love that topic. Thanks for asking that question. I did some research in European nations are adapting to a four-day work week and they're testing it out and they're all... Studies are showing and some of the responses that they're receiving is that increased productivity less stress. And in some of the European nations, we see people live a longer life. So when there's no stress, you can actually, what there's a healthy work-life balance, 
lower stress, increased productivity in the workplace, because now you're maximizing your time on your projects within the four days. And one of the positives of COVID is that we saw improved productivity while people were working from home. And so when there's less stress, your employees are healthier, the creativity increases, their efficiency is there. So four-day work weeks, I mean, you know, with the telework three days on, some people are working two days off, you know, whether it be they're opting for a a Friday off or a Monday off to create that four-day work week. There's a cost savings incurred by the employer for working four days a week. When my workforce is healthy, productive, and satisfied as far as employee engagement, that's a winning situation and a competitive advantage. Thanks for that. Well, that concludes this episode of Building a Coaching Culture. I truly hope that this episode was helpful to you. If it was, be sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Maybe stop and give us a rating or a review and share this podcast with someone who might find it helpful as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.